sure is nice to have Jackie here and relieve Patricia and Cynthia and Pat on the organ. My goodness. Thank you, Jackie. Call to worship is you're going to have to put up with me presiding and preaching. Let's turn to him, 526. We'll stand on this, and then Robert, will you bring the invocation?
Are there any announcements that need to be said? Okay, the scripture reading comes from John 18. I'm starting at... Uh, yes? I guess everyone heard that. Well, I'll be here. <laughs> Starting at uh, chapter uh, or verse 3, John 18. And this is when the night of betrayal when the Christ went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas, of course, had been there many times before. And Judas then, having received a band of men, a band of men, I always thought when they went to get the Christ, you know, it was five or ten soldiers with them, but a band of Roman soldiers was 2,000 men or more. So here's Judas with a band of men, 2,000 strong, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, coming thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Who seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed them, stood with them. And soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Over 2,000 people were pushed backwards by the very power of the words, I am he. I would like to think, that if I had been there, or that if any of us had been in that band of 2,000 strong, when such power was so evident that if we had been pushed back and fell to the ground, that we would have got up and run like scared rabbits. Let's turn to our next hymn, which is 523.
You know, it was, first of all, I want to say, Bill, when it comes to the basket dinner and uh, for the Thanksgiving, you've got to stay because I'm not letting you leave. <laughs> you're one of the pack and you're going to eat with us. <laughs> okay. You know, it was fierce hate against the Christ so much fierce hate that those people had lost their minds. You know, to shout just repeatedly over and over for a lengthy period of time there, two different times, shouting to crucify him, that they would rather have Barabbas, a convicted criminal. And I, I didn't read it in here, but for some reason I'm thinking that he was a, a convicted murderer that they wanted him released instead of the Christ. That shows how much hatred, how fierce they were, that they had lost their minds. It was fierce hate. It has been fierce hate and still is against Israel. You know, they've had uh, seven different wars against various Arab nations. The entire nation of Israel is less than the uh, area of Lake Superior. They have fought against Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, the Nazis, Iran, 
Now the Palestinians, and as we, as Dean told us in class this morning, that the word ham, uh, Hamas meant violence. Now they're under attack from Hamas. There's such fierce hate against Israel that all these people have lost their minds. It says in Zechariah, it's chapter 12, verse 9, is where I'm going to read, but just in the previous verses above that, it's talking about when Israel repents. The Jews are accepting Christ as the Savior of mankind. And I think perhaps they began to began their repentance during World War II. We shall see. Zechariah 12:9. And it shall come to pass in that day when they repent that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. If Israel's enemies had not lost their minds, they also would run like scared rabbits when that is a promise from God given right against them. You know, it was fierce hate against Joseph Smith so much so that those people lost their minds. People from other churches in that mob of 150 to 200 people with their faces painted black that came to murder him and his brother. That's fierce hate. This is written by a 16-year-old boy. And when he wrote this, at the time, or he had not yet learned of the murders of Joseph and Hiram, 16 years old. I sat upon the steps of my father's house on the evening of the day that Joseph and Hiram were shot until 12 o'clock, and never did I hear before such an uproar and a noise that seemed to pervade the very atmosphere. Dogs howling, mingled with confused noises, as though all the legions of the damned were in commotion. For days a man, woman, or child could not be met, but they were in tears for the loss of their beloved leader. I am not able to describe the sorrow and lamentations of the saints. That's the way Israel feels right now, under attack day after day after day. Remember how we felt on 9-11, the ones of us that are old enough to have uh, been aware of what was happening? The sorrow and also the anger that was in us. That's how Israel feels now. Their 9-11 has been happening day after day. Lucy Mack Smith, now she is the mother 
of the two that were murdered, Joseph and Hiram. She writes this. After the two corpses were washed and dressed in their burial clothes, we were allowed to see them. And in the room, there were four tubs of bloody clothes. I had braced every nerve, roused every energy of my soul, and called upon God to strengthen me. But when I entered the room and saw my murdered sons, heard the sobs and groans of my family, the cries of father, husband, brothers of my family, Emma, the wife of Joseph, had to be carried out. It was too much. I sank back, crying in agony of soul. My God, my God, why is this family forsaken? A voice replied, I have taken them to myself that they might have rest. As I looked upon their peaceful, smiling countenance, almost to hear them say, Mother, weep not for us. We carried to them the gospel that their souls might be saved. They slew us for our testimony and thus placed us beyond their power. Their ascendancy is for a moment. Ours is eternal triumph. Our testimony of the restored, complete gospel is worth the riches of the whole earth. We're in a cause that is just so much more than someone going to church and picking what place they want to go. When a person is drowning, do you think that they're uh, wondering if what they're going to do that afternoon or if uh, their shoes match or uh, they need to mow the yard or what they're going to have for dinner? What are they thinking about when they're drowning? They're thinking about self-preservation right then. When we can come unto the Christ with that same intensity that a drowning person has when they are grasping and when they are gasping, when we can offer the Savior of mankind that kind of sincerity, then the power of God is within our reach and we are really and truly led by the Holy Ghost. I read a story about a, a factory worker he was an alcoholic. His life was shambles. He could hardly hold a job. But he was influenced by a man of God. And he started going to church. And then the others at that factory, as soon as they learned that he was going to church, they began to make fun of him. And I asked him, said, do you think Jesus really turned the water into wine? And the man, being brand new to the gospel, he said, I don't know. I ain't even heard about that. 
But in my house, he turned alcohol into furniture, and that's miracle enough for me. In our lives, he's turned what was sour into sweet, what was cloudy into clear. When we had confused thought, it became sure and clear. I remember hearing Judy Milligan on the very first testimony I ever heard her say. People, you know, she was, you might say, that factory worker. And she stood up and she said people that she had been shot, stabbed, beat up, and run over by a truck, and people want to ask her why she's going to church. What has the Lord done for you? Our former prophet, Fred Larson, told us, or told the church, and I think that it means he's telling each one of us as an individual, because we are the church, that the church had to be self-sustaining. That means that we can't just lay around and want the uh, church to hand everything out over to us. And that we need to be self-sustaining. It's not any different than the New Testament saying, make yourself a burden to no man. Without self-reliance, how can we give if there is nothing there? Hungry can't be fed from empty shelves. Money to assist can't come from empty pockets. Support and understanding can't come from the emotionally inept. Teaching can't come from the unlearned and spiritual guidance can't come from the spiritually weak. You know, life is to be enjoyed. It's not just to be endured. When I go to independence, it never ceases to amaze me what all that the remnant church is engaged in. They have so many programs, so many endeavor, endeavors. We've got to be that same way. If we're not proclaiming the restored gospel, then those that would have heard the message, those that would have responded to it, they'll be passed by. We are in more than just a church. We are in a glorious work, and it's way, way more than just important. That's on our shoulders. That's in our plate to prepare a place and a people on earth for the return of the Savior. That's not boasting. That's fact. Those that boast those that were endeavoring in that self-exaltation, they found their way out. You have chosen to be humble. I think that you have a grateful heart, and that grateful heart has given you strength and hope. The Doctrine and Covenant says, Wherefore, stand in holy places and be not moved. Vaughn, at that section 45, you'll have to get the verse. 
<clears throat> she always gets on to me because I, a lot of times I won't say the exact chapter or verse. Wherefore stand in holy places and be not moved. And whether that holy place is at Independence, Sperry, Oklahoma, or Skytu, Oklahoma, or Tulsa, or whether that holy place is just moments of time, they are sacred. Now, I suppose if there was ever a time of distraction on earth that it is now in the days that we live. But hold on, saints, because it's going to get worse. You know, hope may not be knowledge. So I don't have a whole lot of knowledge, but I do have hope. And one thing that I do know is that I know that the church was restored through a Latter-day prophet. I know that the church has a prophet now. I know that the Book of Mormon is the scripture given to the Western continents. And I know that the Doctrine and Covenants is given to us today. I've written down... 11 signs or prophecies, all that have been fulfilled of the uh, second coming. And I'm sure that some of you can add several more on this. 11 signs that the gospel was to be restored and preached as a witness unto all nations. That has been done. There is no nation on earth that has not heard it. That there would be false Christ and false prophets that would deceive many. False Christ, there's been at least 40 or 50 people who have claimed to be the Christ. False prophets, look on TV, and it says that will deceive many because every one of those has this following. They, and they have deceived many. Number three, wars and rumors of wars and nations against nations. We read all of this this morning, section 45 in the Doctrine and Covenants. I didn't know we were going to be on section 45. Wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation. Turn on the TV. Earthquakes in diverse places. Ask uh, Argentina. A few years ago, Oklahoma had more earthquakes than any place on earth. Number five, famines and pestilence. Again, turn on the TV if they're not so busy with uh, um, Ukraine and uh, Israel. You'll hear there's always something happening, some kind of a famine, some kind of a pestilence somewhere. An overflowing scourge, a desolating sickness covering the land. Again, section 45 this morning. And that overflowing scourge, that desolating sickness, it'll come again and it will come stronger. Iniquity abounding, that's number seven I wrote down. A human lives, we have our wrongs, we commit our sins. But I think that is more of an individual. Iniquity is more of the society that we live in when it is 
governmentally sponsored when it was promoted when it is legal. Iniquity abounding. The whole earth in commotion. Number nine, that men's hearts failing them. I don't think that means that they're having heart attacks and just falling out. I believe that means that they have lost hope, that they've given up. They've thrown in the towel. We can't do it. Men's hearts have failed them. And we've seen the falling away, and we've seen the restoration of the church, an angel flying down from heaven having his, the everlasting gospel in his hand. We have seen Israel restored as a nation. There's our 11 signs, or the 11 that I could think of. And we've seen all of this. Alma, chapter 14, verse 123, Vonna. I like kind of picking on her because she got on to me more than once about not giving all the chapter and verse. So I can pick back. Alma 14, verse 123. Now have we not reason to rejoice? Because we've seen all of these things in our lifetime. Yea, I say unto you, there never were men that had so great reason to rejoice as we since the world began. That's us. My grandmother was born in 1885, and their vehicle was a covered wagon. She went from that to the space age in one lifetime. We get to see all of this right up till today. You want to think, well, how are we ever going to do so much? Remnant Church, gosh, less than 2,000. There's so few, we can't do much. But at one time, all the followers of the Son of God fit in an upper room, an upstairs room. At one time, there was only a handful that stood at the foot of the cross. God has revealed that completeness of the gospel to so few because we, the remnant church, is the pearl of great price. I know this. In the early winter, December, 1620, so... 403 years ago, 102 pilgrims landed on the east coast of North America. You know, they're cold, they're huddled together to start the first European settlement. A little band of people, such an unfavorable beginning. Living conditions were so harsh that half of their number died within months. Half of that 102 within just a few months. That means that someone was dying every two or three days. Just a minute speck clinging together on the edge of the North America continent. 
yet they started a development and others arrive and that colony expanded and soon it was taming the wilderness and pushed to the Ohio and then to the Mississippi and then on to the Pacific and what started as that tiny group cold and huddled together a colony became the mightiest nation on earth the remnant church of Jesus Christ is the colony of heaven on earth. His words were something like the Savior's words. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which is indeed the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs and becometh a tree. This organization that carries and bears the Lord's name was planted as a seed by Moroni sent from God. Now I know we are slandered, we are assaulted by the adversary, and one wonders what our future is going to be like, but it is from the guarantee of God the colony is to grow and to expand. It's time for pilgrims. The hour is for colonists. The time for courageous souls, guided by direction from God and his prophets. This is the calling of the remnant church as a colony of heaven. Who else is preparing a place for the return of God or the return of Christ? Who else? In quantum physics, there's something called quantum entanglement that allows objects to be connected no matter how far apart they are. You know, the Earth is entangled with Pluto. Our solar system is entangled with other solar systems that are in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is entangled with all the other galaxies no matter how far apart they are. We are entangled in quantum physics. We are part of the past that connects us right up to today. The forces of past are the forces of now. That old, old vision of Nephi and that old vision of Joseph Smith, they're our vision now. A true Latter-day Saint is a living monument to the way that things were and how they need to be now. All through the scriptures, there are so many that got to see the Christ even before he was born and those that saw him in the physical realm. This is John 19, chapter, or John chapter 19, verse 5. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. And Pilate said, Behold the man. When we or those that can find the way to truly behold the man, we find a doorway to having joy in life again. We find a healing lotion that the worst of life can give 
So when we are surrounded by grief and sorrow, behold a man. When we feel lost or confused, behold the man. When we are feeling defeated, when we're in despair, behold the man that healing lotion will heal. Mark chapter 4. Verses 28 through 33. Christ had taught all day. End of a long day. He had just had a full day. And he is beside the Galilee Sea. And before I read this, I want to tell you that the Galilean Sea isn't very big. It's two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. It's roughly five miles wide, 12 miles long. It's a lake. I should have compared that to square miles of Skytook or Grand Lake or something. But it's not very big. So after the end of a long day of teaching, and when the evening was come, I want to sh through this, you're going to see that this was designed this was not happenstance when the evening was come he said unto them let us pass over to the other side it's not like they had a long ways to go and when they had sent away the multitude they took him christ in the ship now these are little boats and there are also with him other little ships and there arose a great storm of wind and waves beat over into the ship. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep. Can you imagine being asleep when you're a little bitty row across the lake? And of waves and wind so violent they think they're going to uh, drown. And he's asleep. And they awoke him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this? Ask Peter, What manner of man is this? And he will say, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Ask Lazarus, what manner of man is this? And he would say something like, he is the voice that calls forth the living out of, from the dead. Ask the man that lived in the tombs, and he'll say, he is the man that cast out legions. Ask the 5,000 that were hungry, and they will say, he is the man that feeds the soul. Ask the woman at the well, what manner of man is this? And she would say, he is the man that gives living water. Ask the brother of Jared, what manner of man is this? And he will say, he is the man that talked to me face to face thousands of years before he was born. Ask me, what manner of man is this? And I say that he is the man, it's Luke 
chapter 11, verse 21, he is the man by the finger of God touched my chest and cast out devils. What manner of man is he to you? Let's turn to our last song, whatever, 334. See, H, will you bring the benediction?